moments are and how to experience. You experience God moments by risking your faith. Um, if, faith if you don't ever test the faith you have in God, you're living all by yourself and all to yourself. Um, you're doing your thing, all your stuff under your own power, under your own wisdom, under your own might, under your own strength. And it's all you. And it looks fine. It may look fine to you, but it's nothing like what God can do with you, for you, or through you, or to you. And so, uh, so I've explained to you before, a God moment is when God shows up, shows off, and then showers His glory on us. And we just recognize it to be God. When it happens, there's no question that it's not us. And uh, Camp had that about, I don't know, eight or ten times in those services that we had, in the chapel services when I was there. Um, we just had some serious serious God moments. We had people lay burdens down on the night we talked about uh, carrying too many burdens that you're not supposed to carry them by yourself. Um, we had a lot of people come forward and just lay their burdens down at the cross. Um, and then, and then uh, the last night of camp, um, Thursday night, I, I, I almost always find a way to center everything around the cross and make sure the kids uh, fall in love with Jesus Christ and His sacrifice for them again. And I say kids, but all of us did. And, uh, man, it was just extremely humbling uh, to be in a chapel service with a whole bunch of students that sang their lungs out. A little praise band from uh, uh, Georgia, Drawing from Heaven, that we've had here a couple times uh, for youth events. Got to get them to come do worship for you all sometime. <laughs> uh, but they, they did a magnificent job of leading in worship. And uh, we, just, we just got right before the throne of God that night, before I ever got in the pulpit. And then, and then once I was able to teach... That Paul says we glory only in the cross, and uh, there's no other uh, thing in heaven, or no other thing on earth or heaven you can glory in ultimately, but the cross and every good thing you have, every good thing you have in life, every good thing you've ever enjoyed, the fun you've had in your life, the, the laughter, every giggle you've ever giggled is because of the cross, um, because you're supposed to be in hell today. Uh, apart from the cross, every one of us should have been sent straight to hell, but God had a plan of redemption that involved his cross and uh, the cross of Christ. And so the last night of camp kind of looked like this. Mary, there's a slide at the very end um, that I tagged. I know it's not on there, but I tagged it in there. Um, and y'all have seen this picture before. It looks like every year at the end of camp uh, where the students and the adults uh, just come down and literally for 25 minutes, 30 minutes, their face is in the concrete. And there's some guys that hold. We have a, a cross that every year the seniors start the, the last chapel by holding a cross and standing near it uh, because we believe you're supposed to be near the cross all the time. So the juniors and seniors are allowed to do that and throughout the evening service while I'm teaching, people come up and change out and that was really precious. At one point, I didn't want to stop and take a picture <laughs> but, uh, but uh, Teresa was there with Leo and Angel and uh, I think we killed her this week so she's not here this morning. Uh, but Teresa was there with Leo and Angel. At one point, the three of them came up and took the cross and uh, everybody sat down, so it was a mom and her two, two kids, single mom and her two kids, just loving the cross while I was teaching on the cross. And uh, it was a very precious moment. Uh, but then we just had all these adults that just wanted to kneel before the cross and re-surrender themselves and recommit themselves. And, uh, and the students were impacted. So you pray, just like Brandon said, you pray very much for what God did at camp in the hearts of all of us. I mean, I was changed every year I go and I'm changed by... Uh, what happens at camp and the, and the commitment that I see uh, in people's lives there. And, uh, and then Brandon and I would both like to thank all of you who, who sponsored kids and helped pay for camp. Uh, we, can't, we can't do it by ourselves. And, and uh, you know, there's some kids that just can't afford to go to camp if we don't help them. And yet, 
Um, God moved mightily in that. So very, very encouraged by that. Now I want to take you to John chapter 5 this morning. <clears throat> We've been doing a series on how Jesus interacts with people. We saw Jesus with uh, the Samaritan woman, a very arrogant, bigoted, rude lady, um, who I don't think, unless I'm misreading something, never gave Jesus the drink he asked for. John, John chapter 4, Jesus wants a drink of water, and the lady just immediately... Uh, just draws a line in between him and her. Says, hey, how is it that you, being a Jew, would ask of me a Samaritan? Line in the sand. Uh, A Samaritan woman, man and woman, two lines in the sand for a drink of water. And then there's this long conversation that takes place between Jesus and her. And he spends his whole time... I told told the guys at camp when I just used that one story as an illustration. I said, uh, if Stan had been there... I actually said if Jesus Stan <laughs> had been there, um, if little Jesus Stan had been at that well, um, Jesus knows she's an immoral woman, and with one question he asked her for, uh, just could you just give me a drink of water? Immediately he knows she's arrogant, she's rude, she, she's, she's got bigotry and racial issues just oozing out of her. Now he knows in his heart and head all that anyway, but he also knows she's immoral. So here's this immoral, arrogant, rude woman when he asked her for a drink of water and she just comes back at him, if Jesus Stan had been there, it had been one of those, you know, don't you even understand? Because he asked, he asked her next, if you only knew who it was that was asking. And then she gets a little more tense with him. And so if it had been me, it had been one of those moments where I said, you immoral, horrible, arrogant, prideful, sinful, rude bigot, you need to get me some water. That's how I would handle that. It's not how Jesus handles people, though, because he's full of compassion and kindness and love and grace. Aren't you glad he doesn't handle us as sinners that way? When we're full of ourselves, that's not what he does. He spends the whole chapter just asking in John 4, aren't you thirsty? Aren't you thirsty? Wouldn't you like something that would satisfy your soul? Because clearly your soul is very unsatisfied because you've got an edge about you. And Jesus just keeps on asking, aren't you thirsty? Aren't you thirsty? Until eventually she drinks the living water. She... She believes that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and she goes home and witnesses to her whole town and brings him out, and the whole town gets saved. So we watched that. We saw Jesus with some religious people uh, right before I left for camp. We saw Jesus with the religious people, and we saw that he's not kind to relig- people that, that use religion uh, to hurt other people. Not, not Jesus' fan. He is a big fan of people who have a relationship with him, but not people who have a religion that they call Christianity or a relationship with him. And so he dealt with them very harshly. And in John chapter 5, he's going to encounter a crippled man, a man that's lame. And I just want to say to everybody here, in a whole lot of spiritual sense, there's not a, a healthy person in the room. We have sin in our lives. We have wounds. We have uh, issues that have happened to us that have caused us to be lame and crippled. And so uh, this may apply to you in a lot of different ways. But I want, to wa- I want you to watch Jesus interact with this guy. And I want you to see an absolutely beautiful, beautiful uh, grace and God moment that takes place here. John 5 verse 1 After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos, in these lay a multitude of those who were sick and lame and withered. Uh, Verse 4 says, For an angel of the Lord went down at a certain season in the water and uh, pool and stirred the water. Whoever was first there stirring of the water stepped in, and it was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. Verse 5, A man uh, was there who had been ill for 38 years. 
When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he'd already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, Do you wish to get well? The sick man answered, Sir, I have no man to put me in the pool when the water is stirred, but while I'm coming, another one steps down before me. And so Jesus just simply says, and if you remember I told you you should write grace in your Bible every time you see it? Here's the beautiful moment where you just write grace. Grace. Jesus says, Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. And immediately the man became well, picked up his pallet, and began to walk. Now, it was the Sabbath on that day, because Jesus likes to do things on the Sabbath day to stir up those religious guys. So the Jews were saying to the man uh, who was cured, It is the Sabbath. It is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. The man answered them and says, He who made me well was the one who, man who said to you, Pick up your pallet and walk. And I'm just going to just interject right there. I think the lame man's going, Dude, if you got more authority or power than him, you can start explaining those laws to me again. But that guy got some serious authority and power. I've been crippled 38 years. He made me well. You think I'm not going to carry this pallet when he tells me to pick up my pallet and walk? I'm walking. I'm walking. That's what I think. That's just interjected. But I'm telling you, I'm, he's, he's obeying Jesus, not man. But the man who was healed didn't know who it was for Jesus um, had not, uh, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Uh, afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said, Behold, you've become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. The man went away and told Jew, the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. I love that verse. Jesus says, Me and Dad, we're doing some work. Don't get in our way. We're doing some work. Don't get in our way. Verse 18, For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but also calling God his own Father, making himself equal to God. Therefore, Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son uh, can do nothing of himself unless it's something he sees the Father doing. For whatsoever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son, shows him all things that he himself is doing, and the Father will show him greater works than these, so that you will marvel. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. If you're underlining things in your Bible, you want to underline verse 21. We'll be back. Fear not, or for, for not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my words, believes him who sent me, he has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. A little quick background for you. This is a time when Jesus' ministry on earth has started to get uh, risky and tumultuous. It's actually, he's, he's come under persecution in several towns, and you'll find him uh, in a bit of an unusual behavior. You'll find him, just like in this story, not seeking out the crowds. He's actually going to be moving away from crowds. He's going to move up into the mountains, and he's going to move away. Now, the crowds are all going to follow him. Uh, but he's ultimately just continually looking for a way to get out of the scene and out of the crowds and still do ministry. Um, so it's pretty interesting background. He, when he shows up in Jerusalem, um, he's there for the feast and he's got he's to honor the Old Testament law and fulfill the feast re- requirements there. So when he shows up there, and this, uh, he's trying to avoid crowds and yet there's this massive crowd around this pool. So we see, first of all, this man who's crippled in, in uh, the first few verses. I think it's one through four. Um, 
think your handout says one through eight, but it's one through four. We see this, this man who is crippled, and he's at a place called the Pool of Bethesda. The Bible says literally, if, you, if you're in your translation, it'll say near the sheep, and then there's an a italicized word in your Bible. It's because there's no Greek word there. Um, it, it literally just says he was at a pool in Bethesda near sheep. Okay, and now some people think it's the sheep gate because there's a temple gate called the sheep gate. But historically, you won't find a pool near that gate. Um, and then some people say, well, it's the sheep market, which is probably more likely. There was a place in town where they would sell sheep um, for, for the people coming into town to sacrifice at the temple. And so um, either way, the, the scripture is very clear. He was near sheep. Now, if you have a modern translation, you're missing a verse. Um, you know, you, I used to love to do this in my Bible classes when I, when I taught Bible classes at uh, Christian schools. I used to tell people, turn to John 5, verse 4. Is it verse 4 that's missing? Yeah, turn to John 5, verse 4. It's gone. Where'd the verse go? <laughs> it's not in your modern translation. It's in the King James. It's in the New King James. But I'm going I'm to give you a quick little uh, summary here because I don't want you to freak out about this. And people use this all the time and say, well, see, the Bible, there's all kinds of different Bibles out there. And they just, you can't ever decide what's right. And none of them, it can't be God's Word. That's just dumb. You're just not an educated person if you, under, if you believe that. I'm going to give you a quick understanding of this. There's two kinds of manuscripts that have been found historically that represent what we call the, the original Bible translations. There's two groups of manuscripts. One's called the minority text, and the other one's called the majority text. Now, just by its name, you can figure out the minority text has less fragments and pieces and copies of the Bible in it, much less. It's a small stack of, of papers and fragments. If you just took a bunch of paper and tore it into fragments, you know, all that stuff was written on papyrus, and it broke into little pieces, and they have to piece it all back together and try to make it all work. And there's, there's a small stack of that, okay? It's thousands of pages, but it's a small stack compared to the majority text, which is a huge stack, tens of thousands of pages. The majority stuff is copies of the original. You understand there was originally one. Like the Apostle Paul wrote one letter to the Corinthians, one. Right? He wrote the original Corinthian letter inspired by God. Then somebody said, hey, that's such a good letter because it's inspired by God. We should make a copy of that. Well, they didn't, you know, Xerox hadn't been invented yet. Thomas Edison hadn't been around to help create any of that kind of stuff. So, so here's how you copy. You just sit down with a piece of paper, and you look at his, and you write it down. Well, so the oldest manuscripts are minority, and we can date them through several different processes, and they all are very similar. They're old, and there's very few of them that, that, that I mean, there's a small amount that match. That's the minority group. The King James is written, is, is translated to us from the majority text. And in the majority text, there is a verse 4. There's a little line that says, here's why everybody was at the pool, because an angel used to come down and stir the water. Okay? There's no historic evidence that an angel ever did that, by the way. It was uh, the, the superstition of the area. Um, and the pool did have some sort of movement. There is, there is writings historically that this pool had some sort of movement in it. I believe it was spring-fed. And, uh, and that every once in a while, this, you know, the waters above it would just get full, and all of a sudden there would be a lot more bubbles, and the, it was more oxygenated water. People believe when they got in there, and it was like that, they would get healed. And the first one in would get healed. And so, but that's in the majority text, and a lot of people believe somewhere in the hundreds and hundreds and thousands of copies, somewhere in there, a writer, a copier, a scribe guy, 
said, I need to put a little parenthesis in here to tell everybody why everybody's sitting at the porch. Why would they do that? And so, so he just put a little footnote that said, because the pool used to get stirred up, and the first guy, the superstition was the first guy and would do that. Now, the majority text kept copy. If you copy that copy, you keep copying it. You understand? So there's a group of, of manuscripts that are called majority text that the King James is built off of. And there's a group of manuscripts that almost every other modern translation, the NIV, the New American Standard that I love so much, and uh, some of the other, all the newer stuffs, uh, New Century and all that stuff's right over here in the, in the New Living. It's all from the, the oldest manuscripts. And there's this huge theological debate about which one's more accurate. Would the, would the one with more copies be more accurate, or would the one closest to the original be more accurate? Okay? People get all freaked out, and a lot of people go online and start, start blowing up people's you know, stuff. And what is it called? Troll when you get in somebody's argument and start beating people up on, online about how you believe in the Bible and all that kind of stupid stuff. And they use this deal to say, see, there's not even a deal. Let me tell you the real cool part about this. God knew that was going to happen. He did. He knew how the manuscripts were going to be saved and all that. So here's the crazy thing. Nothing between this one and this one, minority or majority, nothing changes any theology of Jesus, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Nothing changes theology of salvation. Nothing changes anything. Every discrepancy between the two groups is this little bitty stuff like this where some guy goes, well, here's why they gathered at the pool. There is no theological difference between all of them. So you can literally shove them all together in one big pile. And the original manuscripts that, that are the copies even, get them in one big pile and you'll find no theological difference. So you, when you stand on the scriptures, you're standing on very solid, solid ground, right? So I just wanted you to know that because some people, you know, I've, I've talked through this before and people go, hey, my Bible's missing a verse. What happened there? And uh, a lot of people tell you that the King James components, King, King James uh, fan club that just... Love the King James. It's the only Bible that, you know, it was good enough for the Apostle Paul. It was good enough for me. Those people, <laughs> um, wasn't good enough for Apostle Paul, by the way. <clears throat> he did the Greek one. <laughs> but a lot of people who go that way, um, they use this example. They say, see your new Bibles, you newfangled people, your new Bibles, it leaves out a verse. No, it doesn't. It went to the original oldest manuscripts and translated from a set of manuscripts that were older than the King James manuscripts. That's all it did. And, uh, and every Bible I've ever had, by the way, hundreds of them. Uh, it's in the footnote anyway. <laughs> so it's down at the bottom of your book. Uh, probably if you have a translation, a newer translation, it's translated down at the bottom anyway. So the, my New American Standard just puts it in brackets as a verse 4 kind of thing. <laughs> so, but you understand it's not going to change the story at all. It doesn't matter why those people are there. The story about Jesus and this crippled guy have nothing to do with the pool being stirred or not stirred, with an angel stirring it or however it happens, whyever they're there. We just know there's a man who's at a pool in Bethesda, uh, somewhere near the sheep market or where sheep hang out, and he's waiting there. And then we know this about him. He is a crippled man. He's a crippled man. <clears throat> and we're going to see that in real detail. The other people that are there, there's, there's multitudes of sick that gather here. The, the, the text actually says multitude, a multitude of sick people, sick, blind, lame, and withered. There are lots of handicapped people, lots of handicapped people hanging around this deal. Now, I, I liken this, and I, I have friends that are very handicapped and have a lot of issues, so I'm not making fun of any of them, but this is literally the early handicap Olympics moment, okay? Because you got, think about this, you got multitudes, and in, in the Greek, that's a lot. It's not a small amount. 
multitudes of sick and lame people laying on pallets, blind people hanging out at this pool. Okay? We think it's a real shallow pool, or there'd be a whole lot of dead people there. Uh, but they're, they're laying near this pool, sitting near this pool. They've got all their stuff. They've been there for years, some of them, waiting on their chance to be the first person in the pool. And when somebody sees that first little bubbly moment where the pool looks like it's different or stirred, like something's happening, all of a sudden, all these handicapped people are trying, they're crawling, they're dragging themselves, they're blind people trying to get themselves into the pool because there was a, a belief that the first guy in gets healed, right? So it's the original handicap Olympic with no safety measures at all. And I'm telling you, there had to be some people that were full-time lifeguards, some Coast Guard guys there. They're just there to rescue going, okay, I'm just going to hang around the pool today in case it stirs and somebody falls in that can't swim because most of these people can't swim. You know, they don't even know where the bottom is. So we got to get them out of the pool. And I'm telling you, when that scene happened, it would have been just pandemonium and chaos. This guy's laying there waiting for his opportunity. And his pool is just, to, his plan rather is just to get in the pool when the water moves and see if he can be the first one in so that he's healed. And when you get to verse 5, you have this magnificent moment of grace and compassion by Jesus. It's one of the, one of the most beautiful moments in the New Testament when you... When you understand what's happening here. I, by the way, I've talked through Gospel of John a zillion times in my lifetime. And uh, for the first time in my life, this passage came, came alive to me uh, just yesterday, uh, or day before yesterday, driving back from, from uh, Roberta, Georgia. I'm just thinking through this passage. It clicked in my head, something I've never seen. So I'm going to give you a little bit of help with that. So you notice, first of all, <clears throat> Jesus is walking past. Now, he's avoiding crowds. And there's multitudes of people here. So it's got to be a very quick little deal. Um, he, he stops and he has this short talk with this very lame person and then he heals him. It's a specific man. Notice, uh, uh, this uh, specific man is noticed by Jesus that he's been lame for a very long time. It says 38 years. And it says Jesus noticed that he'd been lame for a long time. Um, now Jesus knows everything about him so he can, he can discern that real fast. Probably you would have been able to tell... Uh, he's been lame for a very long time. First of all, his palate was probably very well worn. He probably has a lot of his home belongings gathered up around his palate. He lives at this pool. He's waiting for the day that he can possibly be healed. He can't wait to be healed. Now, the other thing I want to tell you is when you think through this, 38 years as a crippled person in that culture, just a thought. Don't you think he had a little bit of bitterness and frustration in his life don't you think he just was he watched people walk all the time he watched people fall in that pool run and fall in that pool because they had a you know twisted hand or something and they were the first ones in and then all of a sudden he thinks there's this healing or there was this real healing or whatever it was and he's believing this pool is going to help him but he just he's just crippled and he's been crippled 38 years i imagine he had some bitterness i imagine he had some hurt i've talked to some folks that are bound in uh, wheelchairs and they're handicapped and they have special needs issues. And you get bitter after a while. You get bitter at people that can see better than you and run better than you and can move their hands better than you. It, it, sometimes those, those long illnesses and diseases, you know, just bring a brokenness in your heart that's hard. That's where this guy is, 38 years. And Jesus comes up and asks him a very specific question. Do you want to be made well? Now, I've always said this is almost rude. It's like walking up to a guy in a wheelchair literally walking up to a guy in a wheelchair, saying, don't you wish you could walk? I mean, it's, it's almost got that taste to it. And yet, culturally, 
Um, people have those kind of conversations. And Jesus is just asking him, do you wish to be better? A lot of people don't mind talking about their handicaps and their diseases. I've, a lot of times when I'm at the hospital, I'll see somebody that's you know, wheelchair-bound or had a special need like that. I'll just go ask them, you know, can, do you mind if I ask you a question about it? And most of them say no. And they'll tell you exactly what happened, car accident or whatever that happened. And you get to hear the story and you know, how their life's changing and all that kind of stuff. So Jesus is just having a conversation with a handicapped guy about his handicap. And it, but his question is very specific and very important. Do you wish to be well? And here's what the man says. It reveals a ton about this man. He says, I do want to be well. But there's nobody that will help me. When the water moves, I don't have anybody to help me. So here's the several things that it does. He wants to be well. He has nobody that will help him. And he has no idea who Jesus is. I'd put next to that no one to help him. I'd put the word helpless. Here's a guy laying by a pool in Jerusalem. No idea who Jesus is. Because if he'd have known who Jesus was, if he'd have heard any of those stories or believed any of those stories, you know what he'd have done immediately when Jesus started talking to him? He said, hey, could you go get Jesus for me? Are you Jesus? Because could you heal? Would you heal me? Everybody else that knew Jesus did that, remember? They would grab his clothes to get healed. They would, they would ask him. Uh, the lepers would follow him and say, uh, please have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. They would call out to him for help. This guy has no clue. And even, in the, even now that the conversation started with Jesus, do you want to be made well? This guy's going, well, yeah, I just don't want anybody to help me. You know, you want to sit here and help? <laughs> you know, you want to hang out with me for the day and see if something happens? That'd be great. This guy doesn't know who Jesus is at all. Um, so I, I put on my notes, I put he's helpless. And then next to it, and it's not an insult, I just put he's clueless. He's clueless about Jesus. So he's helpless and he's clueless. <clears throat> and Jesus gives him three commands now. Three specific commands. He says, I want you to rise, take up your bed, and in the Greek it says this. I want you to, and, and the rise and take up your bed is, I mean right now. It's a command. He's commanding him three things. Stand up, take up your bed, and here's the word, and keep on walking. It means from here on ever, forever. Keep on walking. You'll never not walk again. I want you to rise, take up your bed, and walk. Now, it says in the text, and it, this helps a lot when you understand what's going on. This guy has no concept of Jesus and no belief system. He didn't come to Jesus with faith for, for healing. You understand? He did not come to Jesus with faith for healing. He's just laying there. Jesus walks by and says, you want to be made well? man goes, I don't have anybody to help me. I don't know who you are. <laughs> really? I don't know who you are. So now it says in the text, and, it, and he was made well. And as soon as that happened, as soon as he felt them legs for the first time in a long time, as soon as those legs had life in them, brand new, created by God, God the uh, Son who, who creates all things, who gives life to all things, when the life that God gave him flowed into those legs, and he stood up. He picked up his bedroll, rolled it up, put it under his arm, and he's going to keep on walking. Now, while he's doing all that, you know he's freaking out. You know he's had a sure enough God moment right there. He's all, he's got the heebie-jeebies and everything else going on in his life. Okay, he is really, really worked up. Okay, so much so that he doesn't even notice Jesus just slips back out of the crowd. He doesn't want to be in the crowd. He's not part of the crowd. 
He's not going to hang out with a bunch of crowds because it gets him in a lot of trouble right now. So he just eases in, shows an amazing amount of grace to a guy who has no clue. And he eases back out. I want to just tell you, that is pure grace in John chapter 5. Pure grace. The guy's not coming to Jesus for faith. He didn't ask Jesus for healing. He didn't ask for anything. Jesus just showed up in his life. And he did what he does. He sought out a lost guy. He found him. He healed him. And then he backed away. And then the guy gets in some... some, uh, You can just put in your notes here. There's a complete full healing of health. Um, Jesus has power that when he encounters disease and brokenness... Listen. When Christ comes in contact with brokenness, you don't think he can handle it? Man, he can handle it. He can clean it right up and take all that brokenness and turn it into something amazing. Here's this guy that for 38 years has not been able to walk. 38 years he couldn't walk. Can't even help himself to the pool. And here's Jesus going, let's, let's take care of that right now. With just rise, take up your bed, and keep on walking. And he does, man. I bet he was doing more than walking. I bet he was doing a jig and a dance and all kinds of stuff. He was having a good time, Brother Cochran. He was having a good time on them feet for the very first time in a long time. Right? And so here he comes working or walking along. And then the Jews show up and try to ask him some questions. And they ask him, they said, uh, hey, what are you doing carrying your bed on the Sabbath day? You know, this is a Saturday. This is a Sabbath day. You're not allowed to do that. You're breaking the law. And without batting an eye, he goes, Hey, the guy that just healed me told me to carry this bed, man. I'm carrying the bed. So just so you'll know, he, he gets assaulted uh, by the, by the uh, Jews uh, on healing the man for carrying his pallet. They, they just put an assault out on him, and it's that verbal deal of, of uh, legalism. It's a whole bunch of rules. By the way, there were 35 rules that the Pharisees added to the Old Testament law to explain what you can and can't do on the Sabbath day. It got so technical in their day that the the Jewish people that were trying so hard to be so right with God would literally put a stick down the road from their house a certain distance so they'd know I can't walk any further than that and back or it's considered labor. There was a certain distance you could walk from your house on the Sabbath day. Or walk at all on the Sabbath day. And so they had these little sticks along the side of the road. And it would be, you know, that's my stick. That's my stick right there. And so tomorrow, the Sabbath day, I can't walk any further than that. Or if I do, it's considered working. Then i got to go pay all kinds of penalties to the temple and stuff. So that's how crazy it got. And here's Jesus, I I believe, honestly, waiting on the Sabbath day to walk by this guy and heal him. (laughs) Okay, just to freak them all out. So they'll go, what in the world? How come this guy's doing that? And Jesus is like, you don't understand. First of all, there was no work involved in my healing of him at all. And they're going to be mad at Jesus for working on the Sabbath later. There's no work involved in it. I can do it anytime I want just by saying it. There's no work involved in that. Secondly, if I tell him to carry that today, he can carry it. That's a command from Jesus Christ, Son of God. And that's what Jesus is going to do. This man, though, I want you to understand, when he's questioned, he has faith and authority that he ascribes to his healer even though he doesn't know who he is, he looks around. They said, well, who was it? He goes, I, I don't know. I don't see him anymore. I don't know where he is. He doesn't even know who his name. He doesn't even know who he is. And yet he's ascribing faith to him by saying, hey, he told me to walk. I'm walking. He told me to carry this. I'm carrying this. And he ascribes his healing to it. And he gives him the authority to give him instruction now. When you and I get healed by God and our brokenness, we need to give him all, our authority, all the authority and say, hey, 
You fix that, you can fix anything, so I'm completely surrendered to you now. It's exactly what Jesus does, or this man does. And then you have the beauty of Christ in this next passage part. Uh, in between 10, 10 and 19, you see Jesus seek him out in the temple. Because he's a seeker and saver of those who are lost. So Jesus goes and finds him in the temple again. Now, he found him on the, the porch, and then he stepped away from him. And now he seeks him out again. Ever had Jesus seek you out twice? Three or four times? You know, because you keep wandering away? Or you get disconnected from him? Well, this time Jesus disconnected himself because of the crowd. And then he seeks this man out in the temple. And when he seeks him out, he just deals with his spiritual condition. And he gives him a command. He says, he says I want to command you not to sin. And I want, you to, uh, I want your spiritual condition to be healed. And so he deals with his spiritual condition and heals him. Uh, forgives him of his sin. And heals him and changes this man forever. And then he commands him not to sin. Which, by the way, is a command for all that follow Christ. We're supposed to resist sin... Hebrews says, to the point of shedding of blood. We're supposed to abhor 